American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, Azure Wrap. I'm your host, Raj Gupta, coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Eric Schwenk from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. How are you, Eric? Fantastic. Not looking forward to the snow. <laughs> yeah, the blizzard is coming your way quickly. Um, we have as our co-host uh, today a special co-host, Sandy Christensen, who's an assistant professor of anesthesiology and perioperative medicine at o- Oregon Health State University in uh, Portland, Oregon, and she's a member of the Comprehensive Pain Center there. Sandy, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well, Raj. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think you guys are toasty on the West Coast instead of the blizzard weather. I don't think you're getting the the blast quite the same way. No, I was in the low 70s today. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, we'll get to our guests in a second. But before I start with our topic today and our guest for our conversation today, I wanted to give a couple of uh, announcements about the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and some of the stuff coming up with it. First off, our fall pain meeting is right around the corner, literally starting in a few days. Um, starts this Thursday in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, and hopefully most of the people out here listening are planning on attending. And if you aren't able to attend, um, still follow us on social media. If you follow the hashtag AzraFall19, um, all one thing, AzraFall19, you can see a lot of activity about what's going on at the meeting, some fun stuff that hopefully uh, if you're there you can join us for, and um, a lot of great information that's going to be shared on social media for that. So please join us on there if you can't be there in person. Secondly is the spring meeting, the the ramp up for the spring meeting has just started. So the Azure Spring uh, meeting in uh, 2020 is April 23rd through the 25th. It's going to be in San Francisco, California. That uh, has started with the abstracts submission process. The abstract submission process is open. Um, it goes until January 7th. So if you have work that you want to share at that meeting, please go ahead and start your submissions right now. Um, the last spring meeting, we had a tremendous turnout of abstracts, and we expect no less at this meeting. So we really want you to get your uh, work uh, shown there and um, presented at that uh, fantastic meeting. Also going to be on social media, this one's going to be hashtag Azra Spring. 20. So that hasn't really started up, but it will start up shortly after the fall meeting is over. So get involved in that community as well. And the last thing I want to talk about is um, an important service that Azra has put together for its members. It's the Azra Connect service. So if you go to the Azra website and you get this, everybody who's a member of Azra gets access to this. But this is a private uh, members only uh, website for forum for a variety of topics. So people have started topics of their own. There are sub-communities in this uh, forum. There's communities for the special interest groups. And um, there's been a lot of engagement on there. So people that I don't normally see on social media, I see a lot of activity from them on this forum. And I think people like it because they can talk about stuff and not feel like it's presenting to the whole world. Um, so if you haven't tried it yet, go to the Azra Connect forums on the Azure website. And like I said, if you're a member, you already have access to this uh, phenomenal community of people that are really engaged in regional anesthesia and chronic pain medicine. So let's get started with our topic today. We are doing a um, topic on neuromodulation, but a little bit different than just talking about neuromodulation. We're going to be discussing 
the uh, impact that a lack of diversity in neuromodulation and or lack of diversity in chronic pain physicians doing neuromodulation and how that has an impact on patient care and those that receive uh, this new type of pain management or this advanced type of pain management. And our guest today is uh, Jonathan Gorey. He's a director of chronic pain division and assistant professor of anesthesiology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And he's been involved with the North American Neuromodulation Society, NANS, and their efforts to increase diversity and outreach um, in this society and out to physicians who would be practicing this for their patients. So Jonathan, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So Eric and I are acute pain regional physicians. So I'll start out with the, I always like to start out with the, um, uh, the idiot sort of question here. Um, so what neuromodulation, I, I understand it in concept. I understand some of the stuff that's being done with it, but can you give me a little bit of understanding about why neuromodulation is important and some of the, uh, ways that you see it being used recently that maybe people aren't thinking about and why that's going to be really impactful for patient care? Sure. So, you know, neuromodulation is defined as the application of targeted electrical, chemical, and biological technologies to the nervous system to improve function and quality of life. And, you know, as we've constantly discussed the opioid epidemic, uh, I feel that neuromodulation for pain, so speaking specifically to physician members of ASRA, uh, I think there are a lot of neuromodulation technologies that can be opioid-sparing and can be used to treat chronic pain. Uh, most traditionally, spinal cord stimulation is the one that comes to mind. Uh, but now we have access to dorsal ganglion stimulation, uh, peripheral nerve stimulation, and there's currently some that are looking at, looking at peripheral nerve stimulation for the treatment of both acute and chronic pain. Uh, but then there's also other types of neuromodulation that aren't necessarily directed at pain. So uh, the classic example is deep brain stimulation for the treatment of disease, diseases like Parkinson's. Great. Uh, Jonathan, this is, uh, this is Eric. And uh, I'm just wondering if you could kind of uh, tell everybody briefly, I know we kind of talked about it all fair earlier, but tell everybody how you got involved with the society and, um, you know, what, why you're excited to be a member of NANS. Sure. Um, I did pain fellowship. I completed fellowship about five years ago, and that was really right at the boom of neuromodulation for chronic pain. Uh, you know, prior to that, most neuromodulation options uh, consisted of tonic stimulation, and then we had the advancement to uh, non-paresthesia-based stimulation, which I think really opened up the lanes for research kind of in our field. Uh, and so uh, coming out of fellowship, I was always really excited about neuromodulation. Uh, I saw what it did for my patients as a young practicing physician. And so I wanted to get involved. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to increase the knowledge of this therapy to both uh, patients and to practicing physicians, both pain physicians and primary care physicians. And that's what originally got me excited about NANS. That's really cool, Jonathan. And tell me about what you're hoping to achieve with the new role you have in um, promoting diversity in NANS. Sure. So um, I'll kind of start with the 
kind of how this committee came about. And it really came about with a conversation with a few physicians that were at the national meeting last year, uh, just to name a few, Lawrence Pori, Kenneth Ike, and Stephanie, Stephanie Vanterpool. Uh, and we really had a few thoughts. Um, and some of them, or a few of them were that, we know that the literature shows a disparity in opioid prescribing and pain treatment for many disadvantaged groups. Those are underrepresented minorities, Blacks and Latinos, uh, patients with lower socioeconomic status, and for some disease states for, for women also. Uh, we also know that the literature shows that there's poor access to certain neuromodulation treatments. Uh, a classic example is deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's. Uh, there is a barrier to access for certain groups, lower socioeconomic status and African-Americans. And the other thing we notice is that these groups are poorly represented in a lot of national organizations and a lot of national meetings. Uh, that includes attendees, that includes leadership, and that includes speakers. And so it brought about a question for us, and or a couple of questions, really. First, uh, we wanted to really see whether those thoughts were true statements. And so to further understand uh, disparities, if there were disparities in neuromodulation treatment. And if the answer is yes, we really wanted to understand why. Uh, why do certain patients have less access to therapy? And why do we not see a lot of underrepresented groups at our meetings? And we decided that we really wanted to be intentional about our solutions. And NANS has been very successful with their women in neuromodulation initiatives, being intentional. And I believe that's really changed a lot of the culture or the fabric around chronic pain medicine and, and in a lot of our societies. Um, and so we wanted to continue that culture change with a diversity and outreach committee. And how exactly are you doing that, Jonathan? Like, what kind of outreach? Um, what kind of outreach do you have planned? Or tell us more about what Nans has done with women in neuromodulation to kind of achieve those goals. Sure. Um, I, I first wanted to, if it's okay, if I take a step back and talk sure. a little bit about kind of diversity, because I think when we say diversity, there's really four things that we have to discuss. Um, and that's diversity, equity, inclusion, and outreach, which I think are four different concepts that are equally important. And so I want to take a minute and kind of define those because I think that really explains kind of what we're doing going forward. Sure. Um, I think of opportunity. I think of organizations like a party. And this is a um, this is an example that a lot of people have used in the past, but. Outreach is who's invited to the party, and are we doing a good job of making sure that everyone who would benefit from being there knows all the details? Um, I think that includes patients who are candidates for therapy, uh, physicians who could refer, or colleagues who could really uh, provide a lot of benefit to our organization. Um, diversity is a snapshot of who's at the party, uh, so what the attendees look like and what the representation look like. Do we have different life experiences, different subject expertise, uh, different socioeconomic groups, et cetera. Um, inclusion is how are the participants interacting? And so diversity and inclusion are often spoken together, but 
diversity can be created through leadership because a leader can make sure that there's a diverse group of people who are at, at an event, but it really takes a culture change to make sure that those people are interacting and that those shared, those different experiences are being expressed. Um, and the last one is equity, which is, I think is the most challenging one. Um, and I think of that like, do, does everyone have a ride to the party? Um, and, you know, we can do everything to make sure people hear about the party, that they feel welcome, that they feel included. But if they can't get there, then it doesn't really matter. And I think that's also important for our patients because there are some barriers, some of them being, uh, you know, expense or payer barriers or reimbursement that are preventing patients from getting that treatment. And so based on that, uh, we created three arms to our committee. Those arms are a research arm, an outreach arm, and a mentorship arm. Uh, for research, we really want to define the problem. So really understand, we know that race, gender, ethnicity, equality, those are really challenging conversations. And we wanted to know what our organization looked like. So one of the first things we did was we added kind of voluntary identification questions to membership and conference signups. So we'd know who's in our organization. How many underrepresented minorities do we have? Uh, do we have people who are representing rural and urban areas of the country? Um, and also understanding and also motivating our members to do research in areas to understand whether the, the disparities exist and what are the potential causes. And we're planning to do that through research awards, through poster awards, through uh, scholarships to our conference, et cetera. Um, the second is outreach. And we think that outreach might be a potential solution. And that includes outreach to patients um, and outreach to physicians. I know um, on your last podcast, you had Shalini Shah on, who was actually a couple years ahead of me in residency. So yay, Cornell alums, you've had two in a row. Um, Very but, nice. uh, it, it's, and, and one of the things that you discussed was providing, uh, education in multiple languages. And so we need to make sure that we can provide neuromodulation information to our physicians in multiple languages, uh, so that we can ensure outreach and access. Um, but also make sure that primary care docs understand neuromodulation and also make sure that all of our potential members that could really add to our organization are understand what we're doing. Uh, and the last is mentorship, which is probably the one that I'm most passionate about uh, because I didn't really understand what neuromodulation was until, you know, I maybe heard about it during my CA3 year. And I didn't really learn a lot of in-depth information until I was a pain fellow. And so we want to make sure that the doctors of tomorrow know about our therapies. I think we're doing a good job with our residents and fellows, but I think we have to be more intentional with our medical students and our potential physicians, kind of starting that pipeline earlier and making sure that people know about this field that I'm really excited about, that I think is really cool. And maybe see if we can increase the number of 
potential physicians, medical students who go into neuromodulation-related fields. Jonathan, I, I, I will be the first uh, to say that I'm impressed with what you're doing, and I, I have not been aware of the, uh, I guess, the lack of diversity that probably has existed. i one of the first to, to, to readily admit that, so I certainly admire the, the efforts that, you, that you're uh, you and Nans are taking, and I would I would follow up just maybe with like a uh, a devil's advocate question of uh, you know so I think let's say you think diversity is good and that certainly is the case, but is there any is there any actual uh, evidence for for outcome uh, benefits in increasing the diversity in, in an organization like this? Would you be able to speak to that? Sure, I, I think so. Um, and and I think that's that's a part of what we need to do in our research arm is to bring out more of this data. But I can speak to some of the things we know. Uh, we know in the literature that African-American male patients do better when they have African-American male physicians. Um, and and there's some literature that's shown that that's true of of all African-Americans. Um, so I think that in, increasing the number of people at the table will improve outcomes for certain kind of disadvantaged groups. We also know in looking at Fortune 500 companies that companies that have the largest amount of diversity, that normally correlates with improved performance year after year. Um, and, and I know that we can't necessarily um, equate the corporate world to the medical world. But I, I think that there's something there that when an organization has diversity of thought, and I don't think it necessarily, you know, diversity doesn't start and end with race. I think it also includes gender. It includes life experience. Um, it includes kind of the area that you live, whether that be urban versus rural. Um, I can say that from having trained in New York and now practicing in, in Arkansas, my patient population is very different. And my discussions centering around neuromodulation are very different. And so I think that if we need to advance our field, we need to have people with both perspectives at the table. And so I think in general, as we increase the, the size of the table and increase the representation, I think that our care will be better. And I think that we will be able to deliver a more cohesive message to our patients that more patients will respond to. So Jonathan, I mean, ultimately the goal is to get patients access to whatever is the best care for them in an equitable fashion. Correct. And, um, I, and I hear the point that you're saying that um, if we have people that look like the patients, they're more likely, the theory being is that if the patients look like their doctors, that they're more likely to receive options um, as equally as other races or other uh, majority populations. Um, I wonder if there's also a secondary benefit of a spillover effect that even if your doctor doesn't look like you, if the community as a whole is actively participating in this, uh, in this discussion, 
do you see um, or, or have you guys seen evidence of that kind of a ripple effect where the benefits exceed? Because ultimately, you're never going to have in a situation where everybody's doctor looks like their patient. Of course. Um, I don't care who's the majority, who's the minority. That doesn't ever uh, work. But the goal is to get equitable options um, and allow the patient to have the autonomy to make those decisions for whatever's best for their life situation, uh, but to be given an equal chance at all the options. Um, where do you guys see, like, and that may be too far out right now to kind of see that effect, but um, have you guys had discussions in that regard? We definitely have, and, and I definitely don't think it's too far out, and I think that's a part, a part of the discussion now. Um, sometimes the most important thing is to be present for the conversation. And I think having the conversation, as you've said, really does bring about change and brings about change in perspective. And taking a snapshot of where we are and whether and who's benefiting from these therapies or who's getting access to these therapies just allows us to have the conversation. And that may, just that conversation may change someone's interaction with one patient that they may not have offered therapy to, or they might spend an extra minute kind of helping to present that therapy a different way, or they may spend an extra minute downloading a video that's in a different language that may resonate with that patient. And so I agree with you 100%. I think um, the willingness of an organization to even have conversations about diversity, because conversations are optional. Um, you know, they're, they're two-way discussions, and one party can always stop talking or walk away. And so I agree with you 100%. Continuing the discussion, I think, brings about a drastic amount of change. That's interesting. One of the things this makes me think of is um, Tina Doshi recently published in Pain Medicine an article about the representation of women in pain medicine fellowships. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess not surprisingly, she found that if the program director or if the division chief was female, they were more likely to have more females in that pain fellowship overall. And I kind of wonder if the leadership of NANS is kind of a similar model for that, that as the leadership um, has more diversity, then the members also become more diverse. I don't know if you have any opinions on that. I agree. And I, I think while, while I do think that, you know, you have to start with the membership, um, I think it's, it's also about leadership. I think it's also about who's on the podium. Um, and and like we like we discuss where the where the conversation goes and and what the conversation's about. Um, I think it's about a total culture change, and I think a lot, And I think uh, leadership, uh, whether that leader be a woman or an underrepresented minority, I think I think that in and of itself is a sign of a change in culture that I think permeates an entire organization. And so um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, and I think we need to, and I think that's where the intentionality comes in 
And we have to really, we can't um, kind of wait and hope for things to change or for, for, for someone to, I, I think we have to be intentional about driving some of this culture change so that we can see the fruits. And what is Nans doing to kind of drive that change? Like, what kind of changes do you guys have in store for us? Sure. Um, we are, you know, as a part of our committee, we are, you know, I think the main thing we're doing right now is we're pushing research. Uh, we're also increasing the pipeline. Uh, so we are currently having conversations with uh, multiple minority uh, medical student groups, so SNMA, uh, the Latino Medical Student Association, the South Asian Medical Student Association, to try to ensure that we are exposing those students to our field, because um, unfortunately, most medical students don't get much access to chronic pain treatment um, or neuromodulation. Uh, but we're also working to ensure that we create a mentorship program uh, and to ensure that there's representation in partnership with women in neuromodulation, that there's representation on the podium, that there's representation in leadership, and that there is someone at the table in all discussions that we're having as an organization. Yeah, Jonathan, uh, uh, without knowing exact numbers, do you have a rough idea of how big NANS is? And uh, along those lines, do you, do you guys have any plans on expanding this concept to uh, the pain community uh, at large or any, uh, any bigger, bigger organizations? Sure. I, I don't have exact numbers for NANS on me, um, but I do... I do feel, and, I, and I'll focus more on your later question, I really think that some of the women in neuromodulation initiatives that came out of NANS, and, and I'm, I'm a little too junior for when they started, but I definitely feel that there's been a culture change in many organizations, and I, and I can see it um, in, in ASRA and in other kind of chronic pain organizations that I'm involved in. And we're hopeful that some of our changes will also permeate other organizations also. And, and not just organizations, but also our journals. Um, and like I said, our leadership. Yeah, the journals is a good point. And uh, I, I know that's sort of an ongoing uh, topic of, of discussion as well. But um, you know that that's definitely definitely something that needs to be uh, addressed. I think, and it sounds like you guys are taking some good initial steps to to head there. So, according to the website, it looks like uh, you know I don't know how updated this is, but Nan's website says that they have about thirteen hundred active members. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that sounds correct. Still, that um, that sounds you know. that sounds about correct. I, I would yeah. have I would have guessed somewhere between a thousand and two thousand. So that that's probably correct. Yeah. So I, I want to bring up an article that you shared with us um, because at at the end of the day, um, what what uh, we really what we're really ultimately trying to aim for is what patients get as far as their care. And this this article you shared with me kind of really um, 
was enlightening. There was a, uh, it's titled uh, Disparities in Access to Deep Brain Stimulation Surgery for Parkinson Disease. Um, uh, this is personal to me because we've had some very close family friends and, and, and family that have had Parkinson's and have had DBS, and I have very close colleagues that do this for people. And just to, I'm not going to summarize the whole article, but they were querying a national database. Um, and uh, they said that even though uh, almost 5% of all Parkinson's um, disease discharges from hospitals were African American, only 0.1% of them were uh, of the DBS patients for Parkinson's disease were African American. And that was a astounding difference to me that that means that 99.9% of the uh, DBS patients were not African Americans. And uh, obviously the article doesn't go into causality. They, they do some supposition about associations and potential. Um, but clearly there's a disparity in care. Um, if anybody doubts that, there's there's definitely something, there's a huge need out there to correct some of this. And um, do you have other examples that you can share where you guys have seen this, such a stark disparity um, in, in, in offered care for some of these patients? Yes, I, I, I agree. And when I read this article, it was, it was staggering for me also. Um, one of our goals is to really extend this type of research into neuromodulation spaces because I think, it, I think it's necessary and it needs to be done. And we need to know kind of where we are as a field. Um, a lot of this research has been done in the pain world, and some some research that we're currently doing at our institution, but um, at other institutions, especially looking at emergency departments and opioid prescribing, that there are um, similar, you know, kind of large differences or large disparities between between groups. Uh, and patients who are matched by severity of injury, uh, chief complaint, by initial diagnoses, yet the treatment is very different. Uh, also, uh, looking at uh, imaging that's ordered, uh, whether that be MRI or CT for different disease states, um, it's been shown in the literature that there are disparities in ordering, and those disparities don't, um, and a lot of times, I'll see one of one of the responses is that race is really just a surrogate for class in some of these studies, and that um, it's not it's not necessarily race that is the differentiator. It's that those patients happen to also have um, less coverage or a lower socioeconomic status. But in some of these studies, that's been controlled for, and we still see these disparities, and so. It's, it's part of why I decided to go into chronic pain. Um, I, I really wanted to be an advocate for those who look like me and, and my family members and make sure that they have access to all of the therapies that I believe in. Yeah, so I mean, uh, and, and I, I think your point's well taken about the... Um, the substitute for class often is 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 really the important point because we often uh, I, I work in Tennessee and we see a lot of rural white patients who mm -hmm. don't have access to early 
care and often um, are well well into their disease process before they even have access to some of the more advanced uh, pain management techniques and um, creating the problem of a lot of our opioid epidemic in our area because they're often just treated with pain pills instead of anything more advanced and so we get them really late in their process. So I think all of us have to kind of look at these different subgroups um, and see how much of them are socioeconomic, how much are cultural, how much are racial, how much are gender. Um, there's a lot of mixed um, uh, variables coming into play and in how people interpret, you know, um, uh, how to interact with the patients. So just as a final and just thought. To, and also to throw in yeah, how much of them are urban versus rural, which I also think is, is really important yeah. as my practice also has kind of now skewed to more of a rural population. And I see patients who are in a much later state in their disease due to lack of access to um, high quality pain care. You know, that sometimes I have patients drive two or three hours to come and see me. Whereas in Atlanta or New York City, you could you could basically throw a rock and you'd probably it probably would land on a well-trained chronic pain physician. So any uh, last points, Jonathan, before we wrap up that you want people to uh, be aware of the work that you guys are doing at NANS? I think you've done a really good job of representing it. I, I, I think um, what I would, I think the last, you know, my final thought would be to really encourage everyone to uh, be present and be available um, and not just for our specific initiatives, uh, but for this conversation in general. Um, you know, this conversation can happen in departments, it can happen in divisions, it can happen at large meetings, um, but, and it can be a very difficult conversation, but I encourage you to have it because I think that it will improve care. Um, the last is I, I wanted to put a plug in for our inaugural meeting, uh, which is going to be at NANS on Thursday night, on January 23rd at 6 p.m., uh, right before the uh, NANS uh, opening ceremony, which is at 7 p.m. at Caesars Palace. And uh, I also wanted to encourage everyone to interact with us on Twitter. Uh, our, our Twitter handle is NANS underscore DOC. That's great. And Jonathan, what's your Twitter handle so they can find you as well? It's D-R-J-Gory. Excellent. And we're going to have this in the show notes, so if you want to see it spelled out, you can get it there and um, follow along with the work that they're doing. So as a reminder, the fall meeting for ASRA is coming up right this week. The spring meeting's coming up in just a few months, and you have the opportunity to submit abstracts. Uh, follow Sandy, Eric, and myself on social media at Twitter. You'll see our usernames in the show notes, and uh, hopefully by now you'll have our – Twitter handles saved already, so uh, you should be able to find us. And I really want to thank everybody for uh, joining on this conversation. I think this was fantastic. I, I've learned a tremendous amount, and I think all of us are working towards this effort in some form or fashion. And I think you guys have put together a structure that's beyond what everybody else has been doing so far. So a lot to learn from there. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. And again, thank you for having the conversation. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, you guys are the best. Take care.